This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Two cards this week. We have Pat Tabler, card number 230, first baseman for Cleveland. And we have card number 118T, Pat Tabler, Kansas City Royals outfielder slash DH. Okay, two cards. Pat Tabler, looking forward to this one. But first, we have follow-up from previous episodes. And I'm very excited to see that it's about Steve Jeltz. Thank you to Matt Albertson on Twitter for sending into the world an image of himself saying, coming to a Philadelphia ballpark near you with a picture of himself wearing a Steve Jeltz fan club t-shirt. Just those words and a picture of Steve Jeltz on them. This t-shirt is available for sale through tdrab.com. You can get yourself a Steve Jeltz fan club t-shirt for $18.99 and you can look just like friend of the show, Matt Albertson. And there is now a Steve Jeltz fan club Twitter account run by Matt Albertson at JFC underscore 2023. So go out, follow the Steve Jeltz fan club Twitter account. I also did see that Steve Jeltz will sign your card. He donates, I believe, all of the proceeds to charity. So if you want to get your 88 Tops Jeltz card signed, we'll find that link and put it in the show notes. Sounds great. So from that very heartwarming Steve Jeltz news to something rather disturbing and a content warning of nudity here on the podcast, we saw a tweet directed at us by Atlantic at the Disco, which is Grud's Atlantic at the Disco. And he says, no lie, downloaded this episode today referring to Tim Tuffle for the walk home after a meeting. And this giant blurred nude of Tim Tuffle is in the hallway of the building I'm meeting in. And later posted it more widely that he was at some kind of meeting in Toronto. And in the hallway of the building is a remake of the 1991 scorecard of Tim Tuffle. Which is a rather generic looking card. Tim Tuffle about to hit a ball. I think a really good action shot in that the camera caught the ball hitting the bat, which was great. Tim Tuffle with a kind of a low swing, about to put that into left field. But then the artist has painted over his uniform, has adapted this card, remixed it, let's say, to remove Tim Tuffle's clothing and have him fully nude hitting the ball. It's awfully blurry in the bits that you would expect it would be blurry, but otherwise very disturbing. David, what are we to make about this kind of art? How do you classify this very disturbing Tuffle? We support Tim Tuffle artwork. We support card art. I'm not going to yuck anybody's yum here. (laughs) Tim Tuffle is still wearing shoes and socks, Mm. which is important. You got to maintain your stability on the field. (laughs) He's wearing his helmet, so there's safety. It probably still has his stirrups on. It looks like he's still got his stirrups on. That's good. I don't I don't know that I can condone this kind of activity on a baseball field. It just doesn't seem safe to me. That ball <laughs> is heading in a direction. If he doesn't make contact with that, you know, I'm I'm scared for Tim Tuffle just like I would have been if I was at Cooters in 1986 with <laughs> I don't understand what's happened to the bat here either. This has very much the look of 
one of those stable diffusion AI programs that I use to make my new avatars. But here, the bat has disappeared. It's been replaced with just some blue and yellow kind of jumbled mess. Can't see what's going on. So that ball is headed right for the down lows. And there's nothing protecting him from that except for his helmet. I don't like where this is going, David. Somewhere there is a cursed list of images that have been searched on those AI generators. And included in that is the words, new Tim Tuffle baseball card. (laughs) I believe that someone was paid to make this. I'm not going to question the artist's intent. Was Tim Tuffle paid as a model for this? I hope so. Ooh, yeah. Hopefully the artist was paid. So thank you for pointing that out and sending it our way. If you have any other submissions for the 1988 Tops Art Club, you can email us at 1988topspodcast at gmail.com. But now let's go to this week's card. And why are we talking about Pat Tabler today? Pat Tabler has two cards and a Sabre bio. All right. So thank you to Harry Shoger for the Sabre bio on Pat Tabler. Anytime we can knock out two cards in one show is a is a positive step in the right direction. And Pat Tabler had a an interesting playing career. He seems like a nice enough guy. And then he had a very long career with the Toronto Blue Jays as their broadcaster, which their relationship recently ended in December of 2022. We've reached out to some Blue Jays fans for their thoughts on Pat Tabler, the announcer. But let's get into Pat Tabler, the player. Fantastic. And we go to the front of 230. We've got Pat Tabler sitting in the dugout. And I think the photographer has kind of done him dirty here. There's no lighting. You can really only see about three quarters of his face. Can you call this a smile? I don't know. It more kind of looks like he smelled something funky in the dugout. The Cleveland jersey from that era actually looks pretty sharp to me. The red and black lettering on the gray top and a black undershirt. I like that look. I think it looks really good. The kind of questionable framing of the shot to include like like Coke cup in the background. Pat is only taking up like two thirds of this picture and then they have just open space next to him. It's a little bit odd framing. Like you said, he's not centered. It is a grimace. He's trying to get a better look at that Tim Tuffle painting. (laughs) he feels about it the way i felt when i saw it at first this is a eh. not one of the better artistic shots in the set let's call this this is a d tier let's go to the back of 230 we have pat tabler first baseman 6'2 200 right-handed batter and thrower drafted by the yankees in the first round of 1976 Born February 2nd, 1958 in Hamilton, Ohio, with a home in Cincinnati, Ohio. Hamilton, Ohio is 20 miles north of Cincinnati, of course named for Alexander Hamilton. First, it was known as Fort Hamilton, and by the 19th century, it was a manufacturing center, was drawing a lot of immigrants from Europe, including a large German population. By the 1960 census, the population had peaked at 72,000. Now it's around 63,000. One odd note, I've not seen this before. In 1986, the Hamilton City Council voted 5-1 to one to add an exclamation point at the end of the name. And so the official name of the city oh. is Hamilton! Exclamation point. Similarly, Ohio State University is officially known as the exclamation point Ohio State University. Hamilton. Hamilton. <laughs> I feel like Hamilton! Exclamation point has been overtaken by Hamilton the Musical. 
in terms of superlatives added to the name Hamilton. Famous Hamiltonians, the Toy Cannon, Jimmy Wynn, Astros legend, the youngest player in MLB history, Joe Nuxall, who was 15 years and 316 days old when he made his debut for the Reds. He had a 16-year career, two-time All-Star, Reds Hall of Famer. He then joined the broadcast team with the Reds and was on that broadcast team until 2004, 60 years after his pitching debut. Robert McCloskey, author of Make Room for Ducklings, Leroy Sugarfoot Bonner of the Ohio Players, and also Roger Troutman of Zapp and Roger, who are most famous probably for computer love, but Roger later sang background vocals on Tupac and Dr. Dre's California Love. When Pat was asked about the Hamilton Tourism Guide, he said, you got about 10 seconds? That's about how long it takes to go through there. I was born in Hamilton and my family grew up in Hamilton, but I live most of my life in Cincinnati. So I don't see myself as a Hamiltonian. I see myself as a Cincinnatian. So Pat grew up in Cincinnati. His parents, Marion and William, were of German heritage. Both of their families came from the Alsace-Lorraine region, which is on the border of Germany and France. Pat had an older brother and three sisters, and he was a basketball star, first and foremost, for McNicholas High School. He wore number 44 on the basketball and baseball field in honor of his hero, Jerry West. As a junior on the basketball court, he was All-City and honorable mention All-State. As a senior, he was first team for the Southwestern Ohio region and co-player of the year, averaging 25 points, 10 rebounds, and 6 assists. He set school records on the basketball court and was offered a scholarship to play at the collegiate level at Virginia Tech. And so throughout his high school career, baseball was secondary. He's, of course, very good at it, as most guys who play Major League Baseball are at a young age. But he didn't even try out for the baseball team as a freshman. He spent his summers practicing basketball, but his baseball coach by his sophomore season thought that he had more potential on the diamond than on the basketball court. So his coach said that he was the best sophomore he had ever seen. And this is a guy who didn't play as a freshman. As a junior, Pat hit 487, leads the team to a city title. As a senior, they win the city title again, and MLB scouts are watching him. He gets an invite to try out with the Cincinnati Reds, his hometown team. He's on the field with Charlie Hustle and Joe Morgan, Johnny Bench. Sparky Anderson tells him that the Reds will pick him in the first round if he is still on the board. The Reds, because they were so good at the time, had the 23rd pick in the draft. On draft day, Pat was expecting a first-round call because of that Sparky Anderson comment. And so he was sitting with his high school baseball coach in the office. They got a call after 15 picks. With the 16th pick in the draft, it was the Yankees scout Wayne Morgan. Morgan was also the scout who discovered Terry Poole and Lloyd Mosby. And Pat had a decision to make. He was... A little disappointed that he didn't get picked by the Reds, but he also was picked before the Reds had a chance to select him, so it wasn't like he got passed by. But this was the New York Yankees, and so for a kid growing up in the 60s and 70s, that's a big deal. Ultimately, a $27,500 bonus convinced him to sign with the Yankees and take back his letter of intent to Virginia Tech. His first stop with the Yankees was at Oneonta. He hit 231 and slugged 256, which is not very impressive in rookie ball. But the Yankees had faith in him and moved him up to A ball, Fort Lauderdale, in 1977. He hit 238. Again, no power, 269 slugging, 311 on base. And that earns him a second season at A ball. 1978 went better. He brought up his average to 273, hit five homers, five triples, took some walks. 
getting better at the plate. OPS was up from a sad 580 to a 720. He was playing first base, third base, and outfield. A third year, he's at Fort Lauderdale, but then was promoted to double A after hitting 316 in 75 games. So he's starting to grow up a little bit. Keeps that pace up, hits 300 at West Haven, Connecticut with a 917 OPS. His versatility in the field was starting to impress as well. He had added second base to his repertoire in the field. At Double A in 1980, he played the entire season at second base, now at Nashville. He had 27 errors, which is a lot, but he was doing pretty good at the plate. 297 with 16 homers, 38 doubles, 83 RBIs. And he was developing a nice personality, too. He was a character in a folksy, fun way, friendly to reporters. One said that Mother Teresa, compared to Tabler, would come across as exceedingly impolite. The Dalai Lama himself would be told to do something about his attitude. Lassie is crankier than Pat Tabler. I've never thought of a person's personality and demeanor being compared to a TV collie. Pat also got into soap operas. His favorite Mm. was All My Children. And he would play guitar for his teammates, mostly folk and country. But he has also said that he is a big fan of Jethro Tull. I am imagining a guy playing the entirety of Thick as a Brick in the locker room for his teammates. He was then and still is a big Star Trek fan, but only the original series. A recent interview in 2022, he said that his favorite episode is The City on the Edge of Forever. There's one that guest stars Joan Collins. David, as you mentioned, Pat being a broadcaster for a long time, we have a wealth of knowledge now about everything about Pat Tabler because he's talked about it on the air for for decades. But 1981 was the year of transition for Pat. He started at AAA Columbus. He was playing really well through 52 games, a 296, 394, 592 slash line. And he thought he was in the Yankees' plans, but they had Greg Nettles at third base. They had Willie Randolph at second. So there wasn't really much room for him. So in midseason, he's traded to the Cubs for players to be named later. And this is a very confusing trade because according to his 1983 Don Russ card, he was traded for Jay Howell and Rick Russell in April. His Sabre bio says it happened in June. According to baseball reference, Rick Russell was traded on June 12th for Cash and a couple other players to be named later. And then on baseball reference, Pat Tabler, it says, was traded in August 1981 to the Cubs. And then the next year in 1982, players to be named later, Bill Caudill and later Jay Howell, on August 2nd, were sent to the Yankees to complete the trade almost a year later. And these two trades were related. According to one article, Tabler was loaned to the Cubs as part of the Russell deal. And then the strike happened. So Pat is playing in AAA for the Cubs AAA affiliate. And then the Cubs decide after the strike that they want a different player. And so they're going to send Pat back to the Yankees. So he played 63 games at AAA Iowa, hit 306. And then the Cubs wanted somebody else. But instead they said, all right, but we'll just make a second trade for Pat. So it's now described that like, Rick Russell was part of the deal. Pat was one of the players to be named later, but it may have just been an entirely separate trade. So very odd trade, one that I don't know that we've had before. And I think that loan deal and the strike play into the confusing nature of this. So 
even though he's playing at AAA, it, it isn't reported that he's actually traded to the Cubs until August of that year. And on August 21st, he ends up getting called up and makes his debut for the Cubs. And he singled in his very first at bat and stuck around through the end of the year, playing 35 games, hitting only 188. But he had 100 at bats. In 1982, he spent most of the year in Iowa and earned a fun fact that he led the American Association with 11 triples in 1982. But this kind of buries the lead, David. He dominated. He hit 342. He had an OPS of 1.025. He hit 17 homers, 32 doubles, 105 RBIs, and 15 steals. Just crushing the league earning a September call-up for 25 games. So the second line of the card is that 82 season. He had 235 for the Cubs in 1982. Then he was part of a crosstown trade. In January 1983, the Cubs got Steve Trout and Warren Brewster, the very strangely spelled Brewster with two S's, in exchange for Scott Fletcher, Randy Martz, Pat Tabler, and Dick Tidrow. Trout would pitch well for the 84 Cubs, and Brewster was decent for a couple of years and he has some very mean looking baseball cards warren brewster the Sox return here was scott fletcher who was a very good defensive shortstop for the white Sox, and later had a george w bush dog named after him and he was part of the sammy sosa trade martz and tidrow did very little for the Southsiders, and tabler didn't even play a game for the white Sox. and that leads us to the this way to the clubhouse yeah, and that's it. Just a few months later, Pat was traded by the White Sox to the Indians in exchange for infielder Jerry Dubzinski, April 1st, 1983. Two months they traded him for Jerry Dubzinski. A fun note in the Sabre bio says that the Sox, quote, coveted Jerry Dubzinski, and they couldn't <laughs> seem to offer enough for Cleveland to trade him. Jerry Dubzinski was not a fantastic prospect or anything. He was pretty average. He had a 238 average in 242 games. So I don't know what the White Sox saw in him. And he was basically a replacement level player for the White Sox in 1983, a little bit of 1984, and then he was gone. So Tabler goes to Cleveland, and that's the first of six seasons there. He's initially sent to AAA, but after only four games, a Toby Hara injury forces him up to the big leagues. And he stuck around playing 124 games. He led the team with a 291 average, 112 OPS plus, And he hit really well with runners in scoring position, 386. He also drove in 65 runs on the season. And his nickname on baseball reference is listed as Mr. Clutch. He hit that season 579 with the bases loaded, an OPS of 1.335. And this would be a theme of Pat Tabler's career. Even though he's not a fantastic power hitter, he's not a huge slugger. He had 47 home runs in his career, a career 99 OPS plus. But with the bases loaded, he was always effective throughout his career. And he was similarly effective at the plate in 1984, generally hitting 290, 68 RBIs, played all over the field, first, second, third, left field, DH. His production drops off a little bit in 1985, and he had a knee injury. So he's limited to 117 games, and he had surgery to repair torn cartilage at the end of the season. So you kind of look at his stats, and you know what you're going to get from Pat Tabler, like a 275, 290 average, never hit more than 11 home runs in his career, probably good for 65 RBIs. 1986, Cleveland had an exciting team that would set them up for that cursed Sports Illustrated preview edition in 1987. 
But Pat was part of that excitement. He was one of four batters that were over 300. He batted 326 in 1986, fourth in the American League. And Cleveland finishes over 500 for the very first time in Pat's tenure. Sports Illustrated said Cleveland would win 94 games. Dan Pasqua would be the next Babe Ruth. And they didn't even list Tabler as a starter in the preview, even though he hit 326. He was expected to sit versus righties. The Sports Illustrated preview said that they had so many players at every position that Pat Tabler will not start against right-handed pitching. Pat wasn't even that bad against righties. So I'm not sure what, what this expectation was, what this Pat Tabler disrespect was. They did have Joe Carter as, listed as first baseman and Andre Thornton at DH. As it turned out, Tabler played almost as many games as Carter at first. He played 81, had the most appearances on the team at DH, appearing in 66 games. His 151 appearances were the most of his career, but this team only won 61 games because you actually need pitching. Yeah, he hit well, 307, 11 homers, 34 doubles, a career-high 86 RBIs. But as we've talked about many times, this rotation was horrendous. Pat led the team in hits and doubles, was second in average and RBI. He won American League Player of the Week, May 31st. He hit 483 in seven games between May 25th through 31st. But during that week, Cleveland went 1-6 in in the standings. A cursed season for Cleveland. Tabler was named an alternate in the All-Star game. He got an at-bat in the 13th inning, down 2-0. With a man on base and no outs, he struck out. And anytime we've got some relevant Vin Scully, we're going to add this to the show. Going uphill. Fastball. Or he can move it, and Tabler goes down. And I'm sure to your Pat Tabler, you go back to the dugout, and you think to yourself, that's just great. I spent five years in the minor leagues, came up with the Cubs in 81, kicked around, finally make it to the All-Star game, sit around all night, take my hacks, and go sit down. And here is Matt Noakes. But he has one consolation. He was here. That's right. He could be home watching. The American League would lose that All-Star game in 13 innings, 2 to nothing. wasn't Pat Tabler's fault. Nobody could really score any runs that game. To close out the season, Pat had an average as high as 323. But then over 12 games near the end of the season, he went hitless in 33 at-bats. And he almost closed out the season on that streak but he had two pinch hit at bats in the last two games of the season and singled in both of them. That rough patch continued into early 1988. So we have a guy who's a career 291 hitter, but through June 1st, he was hitting 224. He also only had one home run. He was never really a big power hitter, but that's just a pretty terrible run from a guy who had been really consistent. And because of the pitching struggles that Cleveland had suffered in 1987, they wanted to make a move to pick up some more arms. And so on June 3rd, they made one, and we get a second card. That's right. We now go to the front of card 118T in the traded set. This is a much better look for Pat than the first card in that he's actually out of the dugout and in the light. But where is he? He looks like he might be in the upside down, like he's in the belly of the beast. He's not in any kind of discernible park or really anything and what kind of mitt does he have it looks there's so much going on with this card the background is a pink blur he has a massive amount of tobacco in his cheek 
He's got an enormous Casey hat. I wonder if his face was superimposed onto, like his head was photoshopped onto the body of, of someone else. He's got a mitt that, that is enormous. I mean, this mitt is like twice the size of a human head. I don't know what's going on, David. He's hiding his actual glove underneath his hat. <laughs> this is At least he looks aware that the cameraman is there. That's good that they let him know ahead of time. I'm interested in the timing of this picture because he was traded in June of 1988 and they actually got a picture of him. We've had way earlier trades where they didn't weren't able to get a picture. I don't know if that's superimposed, but I think that this jersey looks really nice. Oh, the jersey looks great. I just don't think it's his body. <laughs> you think that there I mean, was a really, cut I think there was some Photoshop happening here? I think so. I think this is it doesn't look like his face. I'm skeptical. I need. I would need some forensic science uh, done on this card. It's very strange. That's Again, a really quick turnaround. That I'm actually. I'm kind of impressed if that is him. That's a very quick turnaround for making this card. If he's traded on June 3rd, I got to look to see when the traded sets were released. But like I said, there's a, there's guys on here who like were traded in like December of 1987, and they don't have their own pictures. And then we go to the back of the card, and this way the clubhouse was that Pat was traded by Cleveland to the Royals in exchange for pitcher Bud Black, June 3rd, 1988. Cleveland needed pitching. They got Bud Black. He had been a solid pitcher, now manager Bud Black. He ended up spending parts of three seasons with Cleveland before getting traded to Toronto in 1990. Pat is now listed on this second card as DH outfielder, even though he was listed as first baseman on his base card. He hadn't played outfield since 1984 regularly, but he was put in that position to cover for an injured Bo Jackson. And while Pat couldn't match Bo's power, he was very good that year, hitting 309 in his time in Kansas City in 89 games. He continued earning that Mr. Clutch reputation, going five for five with the bases loaded with 12 RBIs. And then in 1989, his average dropped to 259. He had always been a below average defender and he was pretty bad in the outfield. Thanks to that poor defense and a below Pat Tabler quality offensive year, he was valued at minus 2.3 wins above replacement that year, which is not good. So in 1990, John Wathen struggled to find a regular spot for him He played some at third base when George Brett was injured, some in the outfield. He was Decent at the plate that year, hitting 272 in 75 games, but was still struggling in the field. So in August, Kansas City trades him to the Mets. He finished out the year hitting 279 in a handful of appearances for the Mets. Then he was a free agent. In January of 1981, he and former teammate George Brett went to Los Angeles to watch Bo Jackson play for the Raiders. Bo helped his teammates out and got them tickets to this game. And so Pat was there in that game that ultimately changed the trajectory of Bo Jackson's career, ended his football career. And so a a little sad footnote was that Pat and George Brett were there to watch as Bo suffered that football career-ending injury. In free agency that offseason, he prioritized playing for a winner, and the Blue Jays offered him a two-year deal. Pat's contributions on the field in Toronto were pretty minimal. Over the two seasons, he played in... 131 regular season games. And in the first year, he hit only 216. (laughs) Not getting consistent playing time, I'm sure, didn't help. But when it came time for the playoffs, he got playing time. 
Yeah. Made the play, played. I mean, he went zero for one. <laughs> he went zero for one with a walk. So he actually got some at bats in the playoffs in the ALCS against the Twins. And in 1992, he hit 252 with 135 at bats. The Jays again made the playoffs. He didn't play in the ALCS against the A's, but he did make two pinch hit appearances in the World Series, both of which were outs. Maybe if they had had the bases loaded. Pat would have. Exactly. <laughs> That's why you keep him on the roster for the playoffs, because if you have a bases loaded situation, there's your specialist. And in those two seasons, even though his batting average was way down, 1991, he hit 333 with the bases loaded. 1992, he went one for two with two walks with the bases loaded. So a 500 average, a 1.25 OPS. He had five RBIs with the bases loaded. Pat Tabler is just, yeah. Just such an odd note about him, his quality with the bases loaded. Mr. Clutch. His last at-bat was a line-out in Game 6. That was a game that the Jays won in 11 innings to win the World Series, so he gets a ring. After that season, Pat was a free agent. He tried to catch on with another team, but nothing materialized, so he retired. And closing the book on Pat Tabler, 12 seasons in the majors, a two hundred eighty-two average, 1,101 hits, 190 doubles and 47 home runs, OPS plus of 99, but his career with the bases loaded, 43 for 89, a 489 batting average, a 505 on base percentage, and a 505 on base for an OPS of 1.198 compared to 0.724 for his entire career. Mr. Clutch, indeed, one all-star appearance and one World Series ring. What about retirement? Pat spent some time with his wife, Susan, and their five children. They went on their first family vacation in 1993, and because of that vacation, Pat didn't make it to opening day 1993, so he didn't get to collect his ring with the rest of the team. But Toronto invites him to come back another time. Come on up to Toronto. We'll honor you. We'll give you a ring. And when he did, he bumped into Tommy Hutton, who was doing some broadcast work for the Jays, and Hutton invites him into the booth. The sports network executives were impressed with Pat, and they asked him to join as a studio analyst. That first year of retirement, Pat's asked to come back to Toronto, do some analysis, and he ends up sticking around. They move him into the booth in 2001 when Buck Martinez was hired as manager, and then he was a color commentator alongside Buck Martinez and Dan Schulman all the way through to December of 2022 in December, after 32 years with Toronto as a player and announcer, it was announced that he had parted ways with the broadcast team. So here's a clutch hitter with a pretty long career as a player and a very long commentary career. Now that we've looked at him a little bit more, what do we think? In 2001, Pat Tabler was on a list of the 100 greatest players in Cleveland's franchise history. I'm not sure that I would have Mm. expected that for a guy with one all-star game appearance. That was 2001. I think maybe over the last 20 plus years, a couple guys might have bumped him down the list. For his career, he was an average hitter. He had a 99 OPS plus, right about average. He had a couple good years at the plate, but nothing spectacular except in one regard. He was Mr. Clutch. Mr. Clutch, according to Pat, is still Jerry West, his favorite basketball player, and he laughs about the nickname. But Pat is the answer to a trivia question who has the highest batting average with the bases loaded 
of any player with 100 or more appearances. He also has the highest batting average for any player with 50 or more plate appearances with the bases loaded. So as you expand that field out, Pat's record is still pretty ridiculous. Among players with 100 or more appearances, his 489 average is 41 points higher than second place. So it's not even close. Daniel Murphy's in second place. After that, you have guys like Tony Gwynn, Zach Wheat, Mike Trout, but no one is close to that average. Trout and Albert Bell had higher OPSs, but just barely. And they should because they actually hit home runs. Pat Tabler was not a power hitter. It's really a remarkable record in high pressure situations, and no one could explain it. John Wathen said, nothing changes that's obvious to the naked eye. His wife asks him, why can't you do that with no men on? And he tells her he doesn't know. Pat said, I don't have any theories. I might concentrate a little harder and maybe the pitcher comes in a little bit, but I just try to put the ball in play. It's just a very strange, very consistent record. Even late in his career when his average is dropping off, he still was able to get on base and either take a walk or get a hit with the bases loaded. Because of his very recent departure from the Blue Jays, I did ask some Blue Jays fans what they thought about Tabby's commentary. And I got some negatives. Some annoyed fans, some said that he was grading with his stories. But I did get some positives, particularly praising Pat's time with Dan Schulman. And Pat described his rapport with Buck Martinez as, it's just two old baseball guys telling stories. I can <laughs> that can get annoying as a person who has listened to Hawk Harrelson for much of my baseball-loving career. But there were a lot of folks on Twitter who responded with disappointment to Tabler's departure when the broadcaster announced it. And I think it's okay to be a little annoyed with your announcers when you watch them every game. But Tabler seemed like a sincere and nice guy. In retirement, he helped his alma mater, McNicholas High, with fundraisers and coaching. And when he announced his leaving the broadcast team, he said, It has been my honor to serve you. I hope that I represented you with the class and dignity that you deserve. It was a great run. And one anecdote that I found charming on bluebirdbanter.com, during the pandemic, Tabler was calling games from his basement. And a player got his first hit. And Tabler said, That rookie's going to keep that ball forever. And Dan Schulman asked Pat, do you have your first hit? And Pat got up from his chair and went and found the ball to show fans on the broadcast. (laughs) And he just seems like a sincere and nice guy. So sometimes those old-time baseball stories or your go-to lines about other teams' guys being big and strong might get a little bit annoying. But Pat Tabler seems like like a good dude. When you listen to every game with someone, there are cliches or things they say that might grate. There are also, as we've heard so many times, and especially like from Grandma's scorebook, that the people that are telling the stories about baseball and the voices we hear telling those stories become part of our lives. So even if they can be annoying sometimes. Well, after 17 years on Sportsnet and 32 years with the Blue Jays, this is going to be a big change for Jays fans not hearing Pat Tabler's voice. There's a whole generation of those fans who haven't known the team without Tabby. So we wish good luck to Pat with that. And thank you, David, for the story today. And and thank you to you at home. If you're a big Jethro Tull and All My Children fan, we'd love to hear more about it. Just let us know on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next week.